maybe you had a chance to read through those first 27 chapters with that reading plan and get a feel for Isaiah. Um, If you were confused, that's okay. Part of my reason for wanting to look at the book of Isaiah is knowing how beautiful it is, but in my Bible reading plan, reading through Isaiah and saying, I don't understand 75% of this, (laughs) and I want to know what it means. And so... Together, I hope we can learn to understand not only Isaiah, but even the prophets in general and how to read and hear God's message in them. We said in the opening sermon that um, from a historical standpoint, if you look at the book of Isaiah, it's written uh, even in this, in chapter two, we get a, a restatement that it's given to Judah and to Jerusalem, that southern kingdom. Um, and it's a uh, from a historical standpoint, it splits into a couple parts with the first half, chapters 1 through 39, dealing with this Assyrian invasion that was going to come on Judah, and then chapters 40 through 66 having to do with a later Babylonian assault that was going to come. But in the midst of all that, the most prominent figure is the promised Messiah. And so as we think about the book as a whole, you can think about it in three parts. Uh, Chapters 1 through 39 speak of this Davidic king that was going to come. The Messiah was the, the, the king from the line of David. Chapters 40 through 55 reveal him as the unexpected suffering servant. And then chapters 56 through 66, we look to the future and we see a, an anointed warrior or an anointed conqueror, and that's who the Messiah is. And so Isaiah is revealing the Messiah to us in these 66 chapters. Another theme that we should note is the theme of the city. Isaiah could be called the original tale of two cities. He wrote it before Dickens ever did. Uh, We find in the book of Isaiah two different cities. There's a human-centered city set in contrast with the city of God where Christ is king. And Isaiah wants to show us how can this human-centered, rebellious city become the, the new holy city of Zion that we see at the end of of the book of Isaiah. And that theme of the city, I bring it out because here in chapters two through four, it is strong. Uh, In fact, if you grabbed one of those structures there on the, on the music stand, it maybe it would be helpful to see that, that this, uh, these four chapters have some bookends. Uh, The first part of chapter two, and then the, the end there of chapter four describe this glorious future Jerusalem. And in the middle, what is revealed is, is the wicked city that, that is presently Jerusalem. This wonderful picture on either end that, that formed these bookends of what Jerusalem is going to be like in the future. And in the middle, we are struck by the fact of what Jerusalem is now. And in fact, I just want to begin by reading those two bookends, these two hopeful descriptions of Jerusalem's glorious future that frame this passage. Let's read Isaiah 2. I'll read verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to jump to chapter 4, and I'll read verses 2 through 6. Isaiah 2, beginning in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the, to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law 
and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be glorious, shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. As of today, there are 31 days until Christmas. Uh, Usually, at least in our house, the countdown begins December 1st, and we slowly tick off the days um, until you go to sleep on Christmas Eve, which in my opinion is the best night of the year, uh, and then wake up on Christmas Day. Christmas Day is one day, December 25th, but the anticipation of all these days leading up to it is what makes the Christmas season uh, so exciting. There's days that we look forward to, like Christmas Day. Uh, On the other hand, there are days that we know are coming that we aren't as excited about. In fact, there's days that we kind of dread. Um, Elaine, I asked her if I could share this, had braces put on her teeth on Friday. And Friday was not a day that she was looking forward to because it means she doesn't get to eat certain foods and her mouth is in pain and all of these things. So there's days like Christmas and then there's days like when you get braces on your teeth. Um, here in Isaiah chapters 2, 3, and 4, we're invited to anticipate a day. And it's a day, in fact, that we don't know the exact date of when it is. And in fact, the promises regarding this day of the Lord are fulfilled at various points in history and not on necessarily one specific day, but it's unfolded throughout history. And so it's a complicated kind of day. Uh, It's also a complicated day in that it's a day of great joy, but also a day of judgment. And so it's a day that we long for and also that we sort of dread and fear its arrival. In scripture, it's often called the day of the Lord. And here in in these chapters, it's just referred to as that day or the latter day. In fact, it's referred to at least eight times just in these three chapters, talking about in that day, that day that is, is coming. And that emphasis, I think, helps us to see in these chapters that Isaiah was calling Jerusalem and Judah in the midst of their corrupt religious practices, in the midst of their idolatry, and their crooked leaders, and their cheating of the poor, he was calling them to think forward to a day, to see that it was a day of judgment and purification, but also to see that there was a day of hope coming when Jerusalem would be the city that God wanted it to be, that it was not in the present. And in seeing that day in all of its different facets, 
Isaiah was calling the people of God to walk in repentance and to walk in holiness, to see what was coming and thereby to forsake all the other refuges and shelters that they had found and to trust in the Lord alone, to stop trusting in men and to walk in the light of the Lord. As we think about what Isaiah was calling the people of Judah and Jerusalem to, it's true for us as well because the day of the Lord is still coming. This side of the cross, we know that in fact, in some ways, the day of the Lord has already arrived and we'll talk about that a little bit, but we also know that it's, that it's still coming, that there's a day of judgment and a day of salvation and a day of glory that is still yet in the future. And so we are called by Isaiah to also think about that day, to consider that day and to choose to walk in the light. Here's how I want to summarize the call of Isaiah to us in chapters two through four. Like this, let us walk in the light of the Lord as we anticipate the day of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord as we anticipate the day of the Lord. I think God's word here reminds us that there is power in a picture. There's, there's power in revealing to us the wickedness that we are walking in and also power in revealing to us the, the future glory that will be ours if we are in Christ. The pictures of these chapters call us away from the darkness of sin and into the light of the ways of the Lord. They, they cause the spirit to say to our hearts, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's walk in the light of the Lord as we anticipate the coming day of the Lord that's described. These verses also remind us of the power of a picture, but in, a, in another way. They remind us that there's power in the picture of God's people as, as we display ourselves as people of the light, as we walk in God's ways and show forth his glory and his power and his holiness in this world. When, when we walk in holiness and righteousness and show the world what the future kingdom of God is supposed to look like, when we walk in the ways of the new Jerusalem, we proclaim the beauty of that coming kingdom and we make it something that's attractive, something that people want to be a part of. Well, before we think about that though, before we consider those verses we read, um, I want us to think about not the light that we are to walk in, but the darkness that we're being called out of, which is described in that center sort of piece of the sandwich in verse in chapter two, verses six through chapter four, verse one. And so actually I'm a little complicated, so I thought I'd just put this up here. This is kind of where we're going, okay? We're gonna talk about the darkness we're called out of, or you could say, behold the wicked city, and that's that center section. And then we're gonna come back and look at the two bookends, the light that we're called to walk in or behold the beautiful city. And then we'll end by thinking about the only hope that we have, which is behold the beautiful savior. So that's where we're heading. I'll just leave that up there. That way, if I don't repeat the points enough, you'll kind of know where we're going. Um, But the first thing I want us to see in this first part is the darkness that we are called out of or the woe to the wicked city. The beauty of the new Jerusalem that will be and that's described in the beginning of of chapter two and then in chapter four frames this passage and is a contrast to the current state of Jerusalem and the judgment that was going to come on them in that day, which is described in in this center section. And so Isaiah begins by talking about the religious condition of Jerusalem. That's in verses, in chapter two, verses six through 22. Just look at chapter two, beginning in verse six, and I just want to read through verse eight. This will give you a flavor of what this is about. It says, 
Isaiah is writing to his people, to, to the people of Judah, for you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. In contrast to those pictures, we see that Jerusalem is not filled with the glory of the Lord. It's filled with the the influence of all the surrounding nations. They look like the Philistines with fortune tellers. They are filled with riches, though we even find in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles that a lot of that wealth came from alliances with foreign nations. They're filled with horses and chariots that represent military power. They're filled with idols. In fact, we read in 2 Kings and and 2 Chronicles that under the reigns of Uzziah and Jotham, the high places remained. Israel was still going to worship false gods. And it led to, in Ahaz's reign, that Ahaz worshiped the idols and in fact sacrificed his son to the idols on the high places. Israel, God's people, the city of Jerusalem was filled with these things, which ultimately revealed that they were full of themselves. They were filled with pride. Just like all the other nations, they trusted in in fortune tellers, they trusted in wealth, they trusted in military power, and they trusted in false idols. If Israel was to walk in the light of the Lord, if they were going to walk in the ways God commanded them to, then they would be a powerful picture. But when they looked just like all the other nations, they were no picture at all. There was no distinction. They looked like everyone else. Of course, there's a parallel parallel danger for we who are the people of God that, that we might just look like everyone else. We might put our hope in superstition and read our horoscope every day. We might think that wealth is what's going to make us secure. We might trust our own strength or the strength of our nation or the strength of our resolve to save us in the end. We might bow before the gods of money, sex, and power and seek refuge in them. And when we do that, we look like everyone else. We become indistinguishable as the people of God. And therefore, God's glory fails to shine forth among us, which is what Isaiah is saying about Jerusalem. But God will not have that. Verse 11 of chapter 2 says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. And the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. God will not allow us as his people to trust and thereby exalt false gods. And so in verses 12 through 16, God comes against all these things. You can see that repetition against, 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 until in verse 17, he says again, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, that day that is coming. The result is that men and women find that their hands are empty. And this chapter closes in that everything that they had trusted in was gone. And they're scrambling, they're running into caves because of the presence of God. The presence of God does not bring comfort, but it brings terror to them. And so they throw all their idols out of their hands and they scramble and hide in the caves, hoping that these things can save them from the terror of the Lord. And in light of that, in light of all these things that they had been trusting in, the call of God is clear in verse 22. God says, stop 
regarding man, in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? As a parent, sometimes my instruction to my children is simply, stop it. (laughs) I'll say, stop doing that to your sister. Or stop that music for a minute. Or just stop it, whatever it is in that moment that needs to be stopped. (laughs) And I think God here is telling his people, he's telling Jerusalem to stop it. Stop trusting in men. Stop trusting in anything or anyone other than me. The command that he gives reveals how foolish that kind of trust is because men rely on God for their breath. That's the picture uh, in whose nostrils is breath. The question then comes is, why would we trust in men and women who are dependent upon God for their breath? Man is not worthy of putting your trust in. Men and women are given breath from God, so we shouldn't trust them. Who should we trust? We should trust the one that's giving them breath. We should put our hope and our confidence in the one who sustains life. Tied to this idea, a commentator, Maltier, gives a key lesson from this section. He writes, the standard by which everything must be judged is how it will fare on the day of the Lord. The standard by which everything in life must be judged is how it's going to fare on the day of the Lord. Everything that Judah was trusting in was worthless in the face of God's judgment, in the face of the day of the Lord. And in the end, it all disappeared and they found themselves throwing it from them and hiding in caves and in rocks. And that will be the case for us if we trust in anything or anyone other than God. Nothing and no one other than God himself can save us from his wrath and give us shelter throughout our lives. Verse 22 is such a great command. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? And it acts as a, as a fulcrum, as it were. It points backward to, to what was going on in, in chapter 2, but it also points forward to what's going to be talked about in chapter 3. Um, chapter 2 focused on the religious condition of Jerusalem. In chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, verse 1, it describes the social condition of Jerusalem. And yet we should also note that the social condition of Jerusalem is not unrelated to their religious condition. In fact, it's a direct result of it. Because of their idolatry, the Lord says in verse 1 that he's going to remove all of their support and supply. It's actually the same word. It's just the masculine form and the feminine form of the same word. He's saying, I'm going to take everything that you trust in away from you. The picture that came to my mind was of a Jenga tower, if you've ever played that game. And the Lord is just slowly removing all the bricks until it, Jerusalem is going to crumble. Everything that they were trusting in, all of their support, all of their supply, God was going to take it away. Verse 1 and verse 15 speak of the Lord of hosts. Verse, they talk about that the Lord of hosts is going to do this, and it emphasizes God's sovereignty of it over all things. All they trusted in is going to be gone. Especially, we see in verses 1 through 7, their leaders. God is the one who brings kings down and sets kings up. And all the corrupt leadership of Israel, he was going to take them away. And it says he's going to replace them with children, with infants. They will rule over you. Verse 12 says that women will rule over them which is probably uh, means that the kings are controlled by their wives or their, their concubines. It's false power. They're puppets for the women of the city, which we find later on are just concerned with wealth 
and possessions, however they can get it. Men, women, children, the noble leaders of Jerusalem are going to be taken away and they're going to be replaced with oppressive and misleading leaders. The leaders were were filled with pride, but the Lord is going to humble them. In verses 16 and 17, you can look at this later, the daughters of Zion go out to attract people, but they become repulsive. And in verses, uh, verse 18 through chapter four, verse one, the daughters of Zion who are at ease and are wealthy are brought to a place of sorrow and despair. Listen to this description. Isaiah's descriptions are amazing. Isaiah three, beginning in verse 18 through chapter four, verse one, hear, hear what he says. In that day, again, that repetition, in that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. The luxury that they had, all of this security that they had is stripped away from them. The judgment of these verses, this day of the Lord, came upon Jerusalem in large part with the invasion of the Assyrians. But those smaller days of the Lord remind us that there is a coming final judgment that God's going to bring on the pride of men and women. When he will take away all of our false securities and he will reveal where our hope really is. And if we're hoping in anything other than God's saving grace, then we will be destroyed. Isaiah asks us, Are you ready for the day of the Lord? What are you trusting in? Before we move on to the the light, just another thought. Let's be clear that we are not the nation of Israel. So this does not directly apply to us, but we can see that religious pluralism and a lack of holiness in God's people and in people in general leads to disintegration in society. If we are religiously... um, corrupt, it will lead to social corruption and disintegration. And so whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, this summary, again, from Montyard seems to describe our society well. Listen to this, see if it rings true for you. He writes, the message of the whole section is solemn in the extreme. Divine judgment on a society begins to manifest itself in the disappearance of solid leadership and the appearance of immature, capricious leaders. Society becomes divided. The age gap opens up. Values are at a discount, and those who should be despised take the initiative. An air of despair dominates elections. All this arises from moral and spiritual causes. It is not the result of failures of policy, but of speaking and acting against the Lord and provoking him. Blatant sin inviting its just reward. 
Social disintegration is a result of religious rejection of God. And we reap the consequences. As we think about that blatant sin, inviting just reward, we should be quick to note that Isaiah really highlights the oppression of the poor in this section as one of the key failures of Israel that brought to bear, that was brought to bear on, on Jerusalem, that brought this judgment on them. Their disregard for the least of these in favor of building up their own wealth brought God's divine judgment. God's people are called to go out of their way to care for the poor. When you think about religious disintegration, it's not that the people of Israel weren't going to church completely and worshiping. It was that they were neglecting the poor and not helping those in need. In fact, that kind of radical generosity that we're called to have, it's at the heart of the gospel. And so we hear God call out this woe on the wicked, prideful, corrupt, self-centered city of Jerusalem. And if we're sensitive to his spirit, that call can pierce our own hearts. And we're called out of darkness. We're called out of trusting in men or any other refuge other than the Lord. And instead, we're given this vision of, of Jerusalem as it's supposed to be. The city that it was supposed to be and as it will be on one day. And so let's move and think about the light that we are called to walk in. Or we might say, behold the beautiful city. This is in chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, and then in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. They describe a, a future new Jerusalem that we have yet to fully see. It's a future hope that will come at, at Christ's return. And yet, with the arrival of Jesus in his first advent, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, we begin to see the hopes of these verses partially fulfilled in God's people. This is that already not yet of the kingdom that we often talk about, that, that this new Jerusalem is, is here in some ways, but not completely. And so as we look to the future fullness of those days, the key command of chapter 2, verse 5, tells us that we are to, to walk, that as we wait, we are to walk in the ways of the new and glorious city. That's my favorite verse in this chapter. Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What a beautiful invitation that is. It's an invitation that, that we are to display to the world what a people who walk in the light of the Lord and who trust in the Lord look like. What the hope of the future is. We're supposed to look like that. And Jesus says we're supposed to be a, a city that's, that's set on a hill that reveals the glory and the goodness of God in our words and in our deeds. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, speak of the exaltation of Zion, that, that the hill that Jerusalem sat on was going to be lifted up, and it was going to be the, the highest hill. The mountains were where everyone went to worship. They were the high places. These locations were thought to be where heaven and earth met, and so that's where you went to, to worship. But the hope of the future is that no one goes to any other hill to worship. Everyone goes to the new Jerusalem. Everyone goes there because they're streaming in to hear from God and to learn his ways. You hear that beautiful refrain in, in chapter 2, verse 3. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. As I was thinking about that, the, the picture that came to my mind was of one of my favorite movies, Field of Dreams, where everybody starts coming to Ray Kinsella's baseball diamond because that's, if you build it, they will come. If you build this beautiful baseball diamond where just the nostalgia and the beauty of this place, everyone will come and stream into that place. And the movie ends with this beautiful scene of this line of cars just driving down to come and to be a part of this, some sort of 
New Jerusalem, as it were, the New Jerusalem of baseball, maybe you could call it. But that's the picture is that everyone is streaming in. They see that this is the place where true worship happens. This is the city that we were made to live in and to be a part of. And this is why Israel's idolatry was so heinous. Because they looked like everyone else. They looked like all the other nations and there was nothing attractive about Jerusalem. They were supposed to live in a way that, that drew the nations to Zion and to the truth of God and, and that people would want to come and walk in the ways of the Lord. This was the call of Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. The Lord declares, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord, my, this is Moses speaking, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's who when they hear all these statutes, this is what the people will say. They will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations Jesus reminded them of that when he cleansed the temple. He says, this, this temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. But they were not. And yet where Israel failed, Jesus and his good news have prevailed. The day of Pentecost is a partial fulfillment of this, isn't it? It shows the nations coming to Jerusalem itself to worship the Lord. And to this day, we see the gospel extending to all peoples and all nations. And God is opening eyes and ears to hear the good news. The result of the new Jerusalem and the result of everyone coming into the new Jerusalem is peace. I love those beautiful words of chapter 4. They're reiterated in, in Micah chapter 4 as well. They tell us that weapons of war used for destruction will become tools to cultivate the earth and bring life. It's, it's a picture that takes us back to the Garden of Eden, isn't it? This is what we were supposed to do. We're not supposed to kill. We're supposed to create life. Oh, for that day. A day when there's no war. And when weapons are of so little use that we turn them into shovels so that we can plant more food. Death gives way to life. The hope of that future, of that future peace is something that we long for but it's not something that we just long for. It's something that changes us now. And we become, as we studied in the Sermon on the Mount, we become peacemakers. We become peacemakers, those who reflect the glory of the coming kingdom in a way that attracts others to come to our great peacemaking God. We start to look like the New Jerusalem, not perfect, but we start to reflect the values of that city. Well, chapter four gives us another picture of this, this new city. And the emphasis here seems to be on its purity and its beauty. I wonder maybe if that's in contrast to the daughters of Jerusalem that had been described in that previous section where they became repulsive and they were filled with sorrow and rottenness. Whereas in chapter two, verse nine, the Lord says, do not forgive them. Here, the remnant of God's people is made holy and pure, and is forgiven, and washed clean. 
Here, the, before the people had run from the presence of the Lord. But here, there's images of the exodus of the, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The presence of the Lord is now filling the city and the people aren't running from the city. They're going to the city because now the presence of God is not something that brings terror. It brings peace. It brings safety. It brings security. It brings refuge and shelter. In response to these twin visions, who could not respond to that call of verse five? To walk in the light of the Lord. We start to see these cities and we say, that's the kind of light I want to walk in. I don't want to hide from God's fearful presence. I want to walk in the light of the Lord and know his holiness and know his presence and know the peace that he brings. But how can that be? How can we who look like the Jerusalem of the middle of of this chapter, how could we look like that holy Jerusalem? The only hope that we have is the Savior that is hinted at in these chapters. The only hope we have of being a new Jerusalem or being a part of the new Jerusalem is the beautiful Savior that's described here. Isaiah is focused, as we said, on Judah and Jerusalem, but the Messiah is his main subject. And we see him in these chapters, that he is the only hope that we have to be the people of God that God has called us to be. Here's my favorite one. And then we'll look at a few pictures of the the Savior that we know is Jesus. But this prophecy in chapter 4, verse 2 says, In that day. Now, if you look at the, if you're reading through this chapter, you, you hear that phrase, in that day. Again, and you think, oh no, more judgment, more terror, more destruction. But it says, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. The branch of the Lord is a, is a key phrase that Isaiah uses elsewhere to talk, to talk about the, the branch that is the one coming from King David, the branch of Jesse this long for Messiah, but here he's called the branch of the Lord. It's the only place that is used, the branch of the Lord. And then the second one, which we would say is parallel. Hebrew parallelism is something to note. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. I think it's right to say that the branch of the Lord is also the fruit of the land. You know what I think this is? I think this is revealing to us that the Messiah that's coming is going to be descended from God and descended from the land. He's going to be a child of Israel as well. This is that, that mystery of the God-man, the branch of the Lord and the fruit of the land, the fruit of Israel. That's the Messiah. He's going, to be, he's going to be human, but his origins are also going to be divine. And we, ha- we must have that if we're going to be saved, if we're going to be into this new city. He's the only hope that we have. He's the only hope that we have to cleanse us. You read about this cleansing. He's going to wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleanse the bloodstains. How's he going to do that? Because he is the God man and he can come and live the perfect life that Jesus does live. And then he can die and pay the penalty for our sins so that he can wash away our filth, that he can cleanse the blood that is on our hands and bring us forgiveness. Here's another picture that I'd never seen before of the Messiah. Look at verse five. The Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming flame by night. For over the glory, there will be a canopy. That word canopy 
is always used of the canopy that was put over uh, a couple when they were being married. It's speaking of a wedding. It's speaking of a uniting of a, of a, a bride and her husband. And so we get this picture of the new Jerusalem and of, of the new city and of the, the bride of Christ coming and the bridegroom coming to meet that is Jesus. And Jesus is the one that, that comes for over all the glory there will be a canopy, will be united to our Savior for all eternity. Another picture that I think we see of the Messiah is, is in chapter 2. Maybe a little bit more of a stretch, but you think about this, this city that is being lifted up and all the nations are flowing into it. And the words of Jesus come to mind where he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. That Jesus is lifted up and draws the nations to him when we see the beauty of his sacrifice and the forgiveness that he gives all the nations streamed to him. And how could we not know that, that Jesus is the light of the world, that he is the light that we are to walk in. It's his light that we reflect in the world as we walk in holiness and righteousness, that he will be the light of that future city that has no, uh, no night at all. In chapters two through four, we think about this call to, to come to the city and this hope that we have and the only hope of us getting to that city and being the people of God described at the beginning and the end of this chapter is to have a Savior that can purify us and make us his, his bride. And Jesus is the Savior. This is our Savior. He, this, is, this is our King. He's the only one who can rightfully and rightly reign over the new Jerusalem. And, and as we think about this beautiful city, we see the folly of trusting in men. As we look at the Savior and see how glorious he is, we say, why would we trust in anything or anyone else? Jesus alone can save us from ourselves and from the wrath that will come on the day of the Lord. I call you, if you've never put your trust in Christ, he's your only hope on the day of the Lord. He's your only hope to escape judgment. He's the only hope that we have. But if you are, then we know that, that having saved us, God calls us to be a picture of who he is and of this city. He calls us to show his greatness to the world in a way that draws and attracts others to him, to be a picture of purity and of forgiveness and of peace and of holiness and of generosity and of welcome to all nations, a people of God imaging forth the new Jerusalem. This is what our world needs it needs God's people to look, at least in some way, by the power of God through his spirit, to look like the new Jerusalem, to look as this picture describes. And so I invite you to continue to meditate on this picture and say, how can, how can I, how can my church, how can the people of God look more like this city that we're all marching towards? And then as we close, the thing that I want to ring in our ears all week long it's ringing in my ears yesterday, is that the, the Spirit would just, as we walk through our days, would just be whispering to us these, these two commands. Stop trusting in men. Trust in the Lord. Stop, stop trusting. Stop regarding all these false refuges. Walk in the light of the Lord. Walk in the light of the Lord until the day that He comes. Stop trusting men. Walk in the light of the Lord.